Hello, this is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And today, we're going to do a zine scene episode concerning Flying Saucer Review, the classic, venerable, long-running British UFO slash flying saucer magazine Uh, we're gonna be looking at volume 27 number two that was published in august 1981 and there's some really interesting fun stories in here some humanoid stuff actually quite a bit of humanoid stuff if you like classic humanoid stories there's also a really interesting story that is going to serve as a prelude to our next episode as well. And I'm going to be saving that one for the end of our examination of this magazine as a kind of segue into what we're going to be seeing next. So it's two episodes in a row here uh, over in the UK, which is uh, which is fun, which we, we don't do often enough here on the show. Um, also, I, I need to say thank you for your patience with our somewhat irregular um, – extended release schedule. Um, Some new work responsibilities at work have taken up more time uh, in um, terms of minutes and hours and in terms of headspace than I was expecting. I don't regret signing on for a an expanded role with more meetings, many more meetings, but um, it does tend to cut into my flying saucer time. So thank you for uh, being part of this as we continue to embark on on year six of the saucer life, which is just mind boggling to me. So without further ado, let's get into flying saucer review from August 1981. One of the things I like about flying saucer review is the cover design, which is very stylized, very interesting, usually focused on various shades of a, of a particular color. This issue is very, very orange. We've got the stylized Flying Saucer Review logo and in the top left corner, and then a sort of inset with classic Flying Saucers zooming around with sort of ribbony looking designs. Um, illustrating the fact that they are actually zooming and not just sort of whatever the opposite of zooming is hovering, I guess. And then below again, black print against white. Um, we've got some headlines, including the one, one that really catches my eye gruesome creature on road, which if you're, um, if you're anywhere that's like where I am here in the upper Midwest in November, the gruesome creatures on road tend to be dead deer. So let's dive into this. And uh, by the way, the, um, image, the, uh, the sort of, sort of image for this episode, if your podcast player, uh, shows that is that, that sort of orange zooming flying saucer motif from the cover. So let's dive in here. Uh, editor, 
uh, Charles Bowen, um, has an editorial right on the first page that is headlined, Hard Times. You don't know what hard times are, daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work and got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard times. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I, I had to insert the classic um, Dusty Rhodes hard time uh, re- pro wrestling promo in there because um, as, as one listener pointed out, I, I forgot to mention when, when, uh, when, when Terry Funk uh, passed away and uh, I, I felt that, that sting of, of letting down my wrestling fandom. So if I see the phrase hard time somewhere, I'm going to um, have to put that Dusty Rhodes uh, speech in there. So what are the hard times that editor Charles Bowen is coping with? Well, one of the things is that there is a recession going on. Now, not necessarily a recession in terms of economic activity, although there was one of those going on in, uh, in, in the UK as well as the United States in the early 1980s. No, it is a recession in another way. The fact that currently there is what appears to be a recession in UFO reports in no way means that they have ceased altogether. As will be seen in this issue, they still come in, albeit less frequently than heretofore. And it is suspected that waves may well be going on in places where, for one reason or another, communications with our part of the world are not of the best, countries, for example, like China or the USSR. Naturally, such a situation will have an adverse effect on a journal like ours, and on the major groups and associations. Indeed, we are saddened to learn of other publications being forced to close down. Now, of course, Bowen goes on to say that in addition to a reduction in the number of UFO reports that are coming out. There is the problem of the actual recession. Prices are inflating, printing, paper, postage. He says, quote, it goes without saying. We are feeling the strangling effects of all of these factors, as well as a fall in the number of our subscribers. Now, don't worry, readers. They're taking steps to correct some of these things, but there are things that readers can do as well. There are many practical measures that can be taken by our readers. Recently, for example, we were dismayed to receive a letter from a regular reader who proudly related that he had passed his magazine around for some 20 other people to read. Well, if only a small percentage of these 20 external readers, and of those who would borrow FSR from other subscribers, were to take out their own subscriptions, it would be a very great help to us. Another idea for the promotion of our journal is for established subscribers to take out subscriptions as birthday or Christmas gifts for friends. I feel bad for that guy who wrote that letter who was really excited that 20 of his friends had been interested in this Flying Saucer magazine, only to be told that, in fact, he was you know, enabling the kind of freeloading that was damaging the publication um, 
no, just no. It just seems seems sad. People like to share what they love, um, and this guy shared his love of this flying saucer magazine with with all these people who were seemingly excited by it. I, I hate to see that kind of enthusiasm quashed uh, by, I wish they were paying money. And speaking of paying money, um, uh, one of the steps that the magazine is going to take to retain financial solv- solvency, a word I can never convincingly say, is that there will be a rise in the price of the magazine. Um, it is going to be raised from uh, or from one pound to one pound 15 pence, which is um, $2.30 in U.S. money. And the subscription rate will now be £6.90 £6. per annum or per year, as we say here in the English-speaking non-Latin world. Um, and that, is, that translates to $13.80 in U.S. money. So uh, just to... Um, you know I love busting out the inflation calculator. And uh, magazine prices – I love magazines, as you know. Magazine prices have gone you know, crazily bizarre, and magazines themselves are, are suffering in any number of ways. So um, I'm always interested to see what things cost. So $2.30 for an issue um, in uh, 2023 money compared to 1981 money. And that issue would be um, – Around, oh, let's see. Let's click the magic. Uh, Nine dollars and ninety-one cents in twenty twenty-two, and uh, a subscription of rounding up to fourteen dollars would be um, two hundred forty-seven dollars and eleven cents. Um, oh, wait, wait. I had the year wrong. I had that as eighteen hundred. Okay, that uh, that that's not uh, that's not right. Thrill as I type on a keyboard for you. Um, $14 would be $46.23. That is not bad. That is, I think that is a, a reasonable, um, a reasonable amount of money. Now in the personal columns, um, <laughs> a man named Lionel Beer of uh, London is, uh, is a, is a keen, um, a, a keen business person because he's taken out an ad that says, take advantage of the recession, books and magazines at Bargain prices. Send a stamp for a list. So Lionel Beers is um, feeling the pinch of the recession and trying to liquidate his UFO book and magazine collection, which is kind of sad. But as uh, as someone who has liquidated beloved collections during straightened times at uh, various points in my life, uh, I completely understand. Okay, now we're getting into uh, the, the more UFO-y stuff in this Flying Saucer magazine, and we're going to start with uh, Gordon Creighton, who would later become the editor in the 1980s, um, and he uh, he handles the story Gruesome Creature on Road in Spain. We are indebted to one of our Spanish readers, whose handwriting on the envelope I regret I do not recognize, for sending an extract from the Spanish magazine Hola, number 1891, dated November 22, 1980, which contains an article about a woman who is traveling in her car with her son along the road from Pozohondo to Nava de Abajo in the province of Albacete, when they allegedly encountered a gruesome-looking creature. 
I've missed my Gordon Creighton voice, not a not a, a a sort of British voice, but a sort of I don't know, sort of bluff kind of mid-Atlantic sort of thing. I don't know. Uh, Gordon goes on to explain that there'd been several UFO reports in this area, the the Albacete province, and the National Police Patrol cars had had sightings, so cops had seen them, um, sightings all over the reason, reason, region. Um, the area, a lot of the area was uh, controlled by the Spanish army and used for training purposes, so there was some suspicion that that might be part of the um, part of the, uh, the 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 issue there, and the the latest sightings um, and, and and sort of this gruesome creature, the woman who gave the report uh, would not give her name. Uh, she was named only as Doña A M M, so identified by her initials. But the magazine, he says, had a very clear photograph of her, uh, which sort of I don't know. I if I was careful enough not to give my name, I would be. I don't know, doubly careful not to have my picture in there as well. But she tells her story to um, to the constable, and this is uh, this is reported and transcribed and translated here in the magazine for us. It was at about half past three or four o'clock in the morning when my son and I were returning after having taken one of his friends home. When we had got to a spot about two kilometers from Navadiabejo, we saw what at first seemed to me to be a person standing in the middle of the road. Still trembling and displaying signs of severe fright, despite the fact that several days had elapsed since she had the experience, Doña AMM, who insisted that the reporter should not divulge her name, went on to describe what, judging by her account, the reporter could only conclude to be a humanoid of some sort. She was in such a nervous and disturbed condition that it was only after a very long chat with her that the reporter was able to extract from her the details of an experience that she seems unlikely to forget for a long time to come. I continue with her story. We had just come out of a dip in the road, and there was this person stationary at first. The first thought I had was that there had been an accident. I remarked to my son that it was very unwise to stand there like that in the middle of the road where a car could hit him. As we got closer and closer to him, the man did not move. My son flashed the headlights several times to warn him in case he had not seen us coming. He still stood there, and as we came up to him, we had to swerve sharply to miss him. The reporter asked if she was able to get a close view of him, and he describes that her features portrayed her terror. She had difficulty continuing the story. She said that his appearance had struck her as a bit strange, and she told her son that she felt doubtful whether it was a man at all. And as they drove by him, they were able to see him clearly because she was no more than a meter away. The reporter asked, what was he like? Tall, quite tall, maybe around 1 meter 80 to 1 meter 82. He was enveloped in something like an overall, beige-colored, covering the whole body, including his head. I don't know if he had feet or whether they were enveloped in it, but he gave the impression of not having any. As for his head, it was shapeless, without eyes or mouth or anything. He was horrible, and I was seized by immense panic. 
He moved, as it were, about three paces or so back in a strange fashion, as though without bending his legs. He gave the impression that his legs were rigid, or as though he had no knees or no legs, or as though each leg ended at the ankle. It put me in mind momentarily of a mechanical doll. He had no left arm and no hands. My son said he must have been a madman or a leper, covering himself so as not to be recognized. After he had moved back three paces or so, just as we were about to hit him and had to swerve, he was just standing there motionless. He was terrifying. That shapeless head and nothing else. No eyes or mouth or anything. I don't like having to recall it. Just as he moved back, my son stepped on the accelerator and neither of us said a word till we got back to Albacete. Once we were home, we told my husband and only then were we able to calm down a little. The reporter then turns to the son. Um, the son was doing his military service. He was home on leave at the time of the experience. And the reporter says, quote, he wants nothing to do with the whole business, end quote. But he, too, was questioned. And this, this dialogue that's presented between the reporter and uh, Senora AMM's son is, um, is pretty interesting. Did you never think at any moment of asking for help from anybody or of reporting the matter to anybody? We were too scared even to look back. We were utterly terrified, and our only thought was to get home as soon as possible. Do you believe that it could have been an extraterrestrial? I, I can't say. I know nothing whatever of such matters. I don't even have any idea about whether the extraterrestrials exist. But there has been talk in recent days of people having seen UFOs in Albacete. Did you know anything about that? Now look, I, I don't know what UFOs are. All I can tell you is that what I saw was horrible. Boy, the reporter was really sort of going hard to, to get this kid to say something about UFOs. But um, the, 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 the young man seemed cautious, which I really respect. It was pretty, pretty interesting. I, I, I liked that. And the thing is, this creature... You know, he doesn't have a face. He's missing a left arm. He's in some sort of beige covering. Um, it sounds creepy and it sounds disturbing. I'm not sure it sounds entirely extraterrestrial. I, I wonder if it might have been somebody who had some sort of medical, severe medical issue going on and and was sort of lost out in the countryside, which is which is terrifying to to sort of think about. Next up, we have um, another humanoid report. This is Humanoids at South Middleton. Uh, David F. Webb uh, reports on this from Massachusetts. David Webb, along with uh, well-known ufologist Raymond Fowler, conducted uh, an investigation in 1978 of a family in, um, in Massachusetts that had some encounters with strange, a strange humanoid, uh, a strange selection of humanoids. Douglas Gould was the first one to see a white-helmeted figure. One day in mid-November 1977, about dusk, he was playing outside near a small shed just northeast of his house. On the ground, he was burning toy plastic cars, which released black smoke. He heard footfalls nearby, as if someone was walking on leaves or in snow. Snow may have been on the ground. Doug looked toward the direction of the sound and saw an all-white being walking as stiff as a board. The being went behind the shed. 
whereupon Doug ran into the house telling his father to go out and look. Tom did so and saw the being standing in back of a car in the yard. He approached the figure, reached out to put his hand on the being's shoulder, and when his hand was about three inches away, the being vanished in front of his eyes. Tom was so shaken by the incident that he did not admit seeing the being to his family until three days later. I really thought I was seeing things, he said. The being was four and a half feet tall. It wore a white suit with a battleship gray helmet and hands, bare or with gloves. The helmet was square-like with two eye holes and sat on broad shoulders. The hand had a mitten-like appearance. No feet were noticed. Tom believes he saw this same being several times later. Why is this kid setting toy cars on fire? That's that's not healthy. That that's that's not smart. I say this as somebody who took the much classier step of blowing up toys with firecrackers back when I was a young person. So just trying to set a plastic car on fire, um, you might need some sort of ex- it, 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 plastic takes a while to get going sometimes. Um, but the uh, the the author uh, David Webb um, speculates that the humanoid might have been attracted by the black smoke and the flames from the burning toys, and then might have disappeared because the father Tom uh, put his hand on his shoulder, which could have been interpreted as a threatening uh, a threatening gesture. Now, Mrs. Gould, the the mother, um, had her own experiences, which were what prompted her to contact Ray Fowler. So this is a situation where several members of the family are are having uh, these strange encounters with these bizarre beings. A series of incidents on the weekend of April 8th and 9th finally triggered Mrs. Gould's phone call to investigator Ray Fowler. On Saturday night, around 9 p.m., Nancy Gould was sitting on her bed listening to music. She looked up and saw a silhouetted form through the door, which was opened less than an inch. The form had a normal shape, was about 5 feet 7 inches tall, and appeared to be wearing an unzipped jacket. The door moved slightly as if a draft had developed. Thinking it was her father trying to frighten her, she resumed her sewing. Then she looked up again. The figure was still there. She bolted for the door, swung it open, and saw a form moving away rapidly. She searched the nearby rooms and then went into the living room where her mother and father were watching TV. No one else was in the house. So trying to keep the names and family relations uh, set, it sounds like Doug and Nancy are the children, um, and both the children are the ones who initially see these forms. Mrs. Gould, I assume, is the um, is the wife. Tom is the dad, and uh, it looks like there's another uh, another child named Alan because Doug and Alan uh, see something then the next day on Sunday, April 9th. Doug, Alan, and their cousins saw several white figures several times at close range. In the late morning, Doug and a cousin were riding his minibike near the ruined pig house. They had a fleeting glimpse of two large white heads viewed through low brush about 30 to 35 feet away. Only the heads were visible in an attitude that suggested the beings were crouching behind brush. Their faces were light gray with large wraparound dark blue eyes. Their heads were of normal size with no hair. Little movement was noticed. The pair were frightened and quickly left the area. That same afternoon, 
the family was sitting in the same area in in near their on their property and they were sitting and talking and they had the feeling of being watched Doug and Alan reported only vague glimpses of several beings that faded from sight or moved too fast to be easily viewed. A cousin, however, saw at least one being and gave the most complete description. She and her sister were sitting together when she saw, out of the corner of her eye, a figure standing about 10 to 15 feet away. She turned and looked fully upon it. It was in profile to her and about her height, which is 5 foot 3 inches. The head had an abnormally large posterior projection and seemed to be encased in a round, clear helmet. The helmet could only be observed because of sunlight glinting off its surface. She also noticed a large, dark oval eye, a nose slit, but no mouth or ears. No hands or feet could be seen at the extremities of flaring sleeves and pants. A belt with a dark central band, vertical stripes, and a black buckle encircled the waist. Recovering from her initial surprise, the witness yelled, jumped up, and ran after the being. It quickly retreated with its back to her and was lost to sight in the brush. Now that same girl, ten days later, saw a similar entity, maybe even the same one, that night. The cousins were playing in the basement, and she happened to look at a window. A white face was staring back at her from only a foot away. She said it was oval-shaped, with vertical nose slits and a narrow mouth. The eyes were large, slanted, and gold in color. It may or may not have had a transparent helmet. She yells out, but when everybody else looks, they don't see anything. So now we've got two eye colors, right? We had the dark blue eyes earlier, and now somebody who is seeing something a bit more closely, um, we, we see um, gold eyes, which is which is interesting. So the the sightings uh, the sightings continue on uh, on May 2nd, which is a Tuesday. Doug again sees two figures that are either white or gray, 25 to 30 feet away, arms held close to the body. Um and he couldn't really notice any details and he said he he could have been seeing them from the rear. He noticed they were kind of moving left to right. Later in the summer, middle of July, Nancy is laying on her bed reading she sees a silver white rod-shaped device reflected in the mirror that is sort of at the foot of the bed. Um, it was suspended horizontal, motionless in the air. Um, she said five inches from her head. When she looked, she saw nothing, looked back in the mirror. It was, it was gone. And then there was a final incident, September um, it was either Saturday or Sunday night, September 17th or 18th. Alan uh, is the only one still up in the house. He's looking out the front window. He sees f- six figures standing beside the road in front of the house. He thought there might have been an auto accident um, and that people were sort of milling around. But five of them were white suits. And the other, who was sort of pointing down the road, had a black suit. And their outfits reflected the light from the street lamps. He wakes up some other people in the house, but by the time they go to look out the windows, the figures are gone. So what are we to make of this? Or rather, honestly, what are um, the conclusions that the investigators who actually investigated came to? David F. Webb, who contributed this article, provides his evaluation. This series of incidents, taken as a whole, is complicated and unique in my experience with UFO and humanoid reports. 
It is unique in its combination of bizarre events occurring over a time span of several years. These events included landed UFOs, at least two types of humanoids, cattle mutilations, poltergeist-type activities, strange odors, sounds, and aerial devices. Yet all of these phenomena have been reported at one time or another in various combinations and other reports. I have no reason to doubt the testimony of the Gould family. Each family member seemed very sincere and concerned in reporting his or her particular experience. Successive interviews revealed no basic discrepancies in the description of individual events. Our character reference checks showed that the Goulds were considered honest people, though possibly prone to exaggeration. On the other hand, I found the Goulds were not particularly articulate or observant. This is especially the case with Alan and Tom. Unfortunately, Alan alone was involved in several key sightings. Teresa had a tendency to orchestrate the proceedings during my interviews. She was, however, very helpful and anxious for a solution. Because of my concern about the quality of their observations and a lack of time, I did not pursue psychological testing or hypnosis with this case. The more general UFO sightings, cattle mutilations, poltergeist things had been covered in a previous issue of Flying Saucer Review. Um, he also notes that there were handwritten transcripts of tapes of, of interviews um, that that future researchers can use. Um, so there's good notes. There's good. Um, there's good things there. Ray Fowler, who also investigated this, provided his analysis as well. Regardless of the results of the character checks, I find it difficult to come to any personal conclusions about the case. Apparently, seemingly credible people reported some very incredible events. However, I would have been more satisfied if a psychiatrist had been with us when we conducted the interviews. Without this, I retain nagging doubts because of the high strangeness of the events and the unusually large number of events involved. If we take their accounts at full face value, there is no strong possibility of their misinterpreting natural phenomenon or misidentifying man-made objects in most of the reported events. The other viable alternatives are delusion, hoax, hallucination, or a real experience. The delusion theory requires exults of a psychiatric examination for consideration. It would require a group family mental disorder. The possibility of a deliberate conscious hoax seems negated by the family's good character. However, Mr. Gould, a self-employed carpenter, has found little work opportunity in the area lately. Times are bad enough for them to have to put their house up for sale with intentions of moving to Maine in order to find better job prospects. Is it possible that this closely knit family were desperate enough to concoct the strange events in order to sell a story? So far, this does not seem to be the case. The hallucination theory is weakened because all members of the immediate family and relatives have allegedly seen these incredible things. Mass hallucination would be highly improbable under the circumstances. This leaves the real possibility that all or some of the experiences were real, subjectively or objectively. Further examinations are necessary in order for me to properly evaluate this possibility. Hypnotic regression might also be helpful. Now, to me, this is the best kind of <laughs> conclusion for a uh, any sort of UFO or, or high strangeness case. Um, maybe there is something there. Maybe there's not, but we have no idea what it is. I I like that sort of approach or or that sort of result because it's it's honest. I mean, it would be easy 
to say they're making it all up for the money. Although a footnote from the editor says that he suspects that if they had been in it for the money, the story would have been more precise and spectacular instead of being concocted over a relatively long period of time, quote, in such a haphazard rambling way. This isn't a story somebody has made up. Um, This is not something that was planned, the editor believes. It was something that sort of just happens over time and these stories keep coming. So I think this is a fascinating story. And um, I I think uh, I'd love to look back at the previous issue of Flying Saucer Review for more of this. Okay, we're going to take our usual midway break now. And when we come back, um, more stories of strange things on the motorways, um, some ads for interesting things, and some action in, uh, in, in South America. And also the bizarre case that will uh, segue into our next episode. If you like Saucer Life and you want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Uh, Patreons get the episodes early. There's bonus content every month of one kind or another. And uh, we've got almost two years of bonus material up there. So um, lots to keep yourself busy with. If you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com slash Chizomedia or via the link in the show notes or just Google Saucer Life Patreon. It'll show up. You can check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or your favorite podcast app. And we are um, still on X, formerly known as Twitter, although the, the place is awful now, so we aren't there much. But give us a follow if you like. And on Instagram and Facebook, you can search for us there. On Instagram, the handle is Saucer Life. On Facebook, I believe it is it, – if you search Saucer Life Podcast, it'll show up. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now let's get back to the newsstand. <laughs> All right, Alan Bell is an investigator for MyGap, uh, the Merseyside Investigations into Aerial Phenomenon. Wait, where's the G in there? MyGap, Merseyside Investigations into Aerial Phenomenon. Oh, are they saying the G in investigations is part of the the acronym? I hate that. I hate that. Oh, he's also a member of NUFON. And this is a UFO IN report. This is just, this is just acronym overload. 1980s. What are you, what are you doing? Anyway, this is the story of Gareth Hughes. He's a young teacher. And um, one night around um, 1240 AM, he's driving home along the M43 um, motorway. And as he is driving along, he looks out his right side window, which in a, in a car in the UK would be right next to the, uh, the driver because of right-hand side drive. He notices a very bright light, and he sees that it's low down and close to the ground, 
and he's puzzled. Why had he never noticed this light before? The article asks, because he'd driven this way quite a bit. He thinks it's a mast or a lighted tower. He starts staring at it because he's just never seen it before. As he gets closer to it, it's not a tower. It's not a mast. It is a single stationary light, which, quote, lacked any substance behind it. So he drives under a uh, crossover bridge, like a, like an underpass or something. He's only going 20 miles an hour, rolls down his window to take a look, and he finds himself level with the thing. Um, he thinks it's no further away than about 300 feet, no higher off the ground, quote, than an ordinary block of flats. So I, I, I don't know what an ordinary block of flats height is, but, uh, at this height and distance, he says it was immense. In size, it was equivalent of a golf ball held at arm's length, blocking out a considerable portion of the sky. Um, the top, clearly outlined against the sky, resembled two curved artillery shells side by side, but angled at 45 degrees toward him. And uh, parts of this superstructure were – it was part of the superstructure of this object. Two beams of light were projected from the front of these things that look like artillery shells. And it was strong and clearly outlined beams of light. But the beams of light did not reach the ground. They cut off after traveling um, just a few yards. So the, the beams of light go out and then the beams of light stop, um, which is I, – I don't even – that's not how light works, I don't think. So Gareth here, Gareth Hughes, is is just sort of staring at this thing, uh, astounded. Um, and then he decides that uh, this is freaking him out and he's going to go home. But he says before he left, he saw two, what he saw, so says are reddish or pink jets of flame behind each shell. And um, he, he didn't notice them come on. He just sort of noticed that they were suddenly there. Um, and, and he... he sort of drives uh drives off uh down the road but he can still see the pinkish flames of uh of the object um, he reported the sighting but uh, nobody else had seen anything uh anything like it um which is that that's it's not a saucer it's not a cigar shaped craft this is something really interesting and i i think the the beams of light sort of going out and then <laughs> stopping rather than continuing to the ground or, or fading out is um, very, very, uh, very troubling. And it's advertising time as Bufora, the British UFO Research Association or agency or associates, I, I always forget what the A stands for, is selling a unique, in all caps, the word, just the word unique is in all caps, unique color-changing UFO tie or scarf pin. Elegantly designed in 18-karat gold plate with ever-changing color background of liquid crystals, the UFO pin is temperature-sensitive and will go from green to gold or pink to blue at the touch of a finger, £3.15 including postage. Other designs available, leaflets sent with order or on request with self-addressed envelope. I would buy one of those, actually. Um, Looks-wise, it's it's a stick pin, um, and at the top of the stick is a, a sort of bulbous sort of chunky flying saucer with ufo written on it in sort of chunky letters it's um rustic i don't know it looks <laughs> it, it doesn't look like a very refined 
piece of artwork. But what was it with the early 1980s and and sort of the the color changing, temperature sensitive liquid crystals? I, I remember um, being a huge Transformers uh, fan as a kid um, when the uh, sort of Autobot and Decepticon rub signs became part of the uh, the toys, and that's because it was it was an anti uh, anti counterfeiting measure because there were all kinds of knockoffs. But I also remember having a, a little sort of credit card sized thing with a sort of temperature sensitive patch in it that was a was an, a mood indicator right you put your thumb on it and it tells you how stressed you are based on basically how cold your uh your thumb is so the 80s big time for temperature sensitive liquid crystal applications uh gordon creighton then uh has some some information from things in uh things in brazil where um People are disappearing and then appearing somewhere else. A man named Jorge de Souza Ramos, resident on the Avienda Guasiao Biario Shell in the town of Linhares in the state of Espiritu Santo and employed by a pharmaceutical laboratory as a representative, left his home at about 6 p.m. on Monday, April 20th, with the intention of going to the office of a friend of his in the district known as Carrego de Agua when about 20 kilometers from the center of Linhares, and when driving along the National Highway BR-101 Norte, he seemed to lose consciousness. On Saturday, April 25th, he found himself in the center of the town of Goiania, which is approximately 980 kilometers to the northwest of Linhares as the crow flies. According to the press report, which was telegraphed to the head office of Odia by their own correspondent Goiania, Sousa Ramos could give no explanation for what had happened to him. He said he could remember nothing except that he had been at the wheel of his VW Passat, registration number BS3806, when he felt himself blinded and paralyzed by an intensely bright, vivid light. After that, he said, it had all been like a dream. He could recall nothing whatever of what had happened until he woke up and found himself in Goiania in a completely strange and unknown place. That is deeply disturbing, but not not quite as disturbing as my attempts to pronounce uh, to pronounce things. Um, but deeply disturbing. His wife had um, had reported him as missing to the police. She feared he might have been murdered. Um, he'd never been highly unusual for him to just leave and not come back and not inform her in in any way his when his car was found um his key was in the ignition documents intact glove compartment everything fine sample medication from the pharmaceutical company all there no signs of violence no signs of theft uh, so the police find his car you know with all this stuff in it and the police are thinking this this guy might have been murdered. We need to we need to find him. Uh, the police take his car in for examination. They you know the people at the uh, the office the office the police station um, find nothing to report. Um, and and then on April twenty fifth, five or so days later, he calls up his wife and he says, "quote I am here in Guyana. It is as though I fell asleep at the wheel and have only awoken now." I'm still pretty stunned and I don't remember a thing except that I was driving the car quite normally at a normal speed. When I saw a vivid bright light that paralyzed me, I have pains in various parts of the body but have been to a chemist and am now taking medicine. I have not lost anything and still have the small amount of money that was in my pockets. Um, 
and then the newspaper report Creighton says um, mentions or reminds readers that there was a similar case in 1974 in the same uh, state, uh, Espiritu Santo, uh, when a man was was kidnapped and found himself sort of awakens on a mountain and uh, it was difficult to get to and as he had no idea how he got there. So a very interesting case. I'm not sure if it's necessarily UFO or flying saucer related, but golly, I, what, a, what a terrifying, terrifying thing to have happen to you. Uh, there is um, some letters to the editor now, and uh, Janet and Colin Board um, write uh, from uh, from Wales, and they uh, they they are frequent contributors to FSR. They do a lot of the book reviews and things like that, and they have uh, some information on, as the headline says, animal mutilation in Wales. Dear sir, we would like to comment on Gordon Creighton's reference in his notes to the chicken poachers of Puerto Rico to a nasty case of animal mutilation on a farm in Wales. As we live almost on the spot, we were able to keep an eye on events and can say that although the national media quickly lost interest and therefore an apparent blanket of silence suddenly descended on the case, the local press continued to report sightings of a strange animal in the area. The only hard evidence on the farm referred to, apart from dead sheep, was a large footprint which was dog-like, and there was no evidence of UFO involvement. Nor was this a case of animal mutilation in the way that so many cattle have been mysteriously mutilated in the States. The thousands of sheep in Wales suffer badly from harassment by dogs and also by foxes, and during 1980, 677 sheep were killed, 468 injured, in the counties of Dafod and Powys alone which is where the above events occurred. In the whole of Wales, more than 1,000 sheep were killed by dogs and 791 injured. So although we agree there are big cats of some kind on the loose in England, Wales, and Scotland, there is no evidence that these or UFOs were in any way involved in the events referred to by Mr. Creighton. Anyone wishing to read a more detailed account of the Welsh incidents, which we investigated, is directed to our article, Strange Creatures and Pows, in... Fortean Times, number 34. Wow, plugging another magazine is not going to do much for this, this circulation of FSR in, these, uh, in, in these, these desperate times of recession. Um, we've got some other small stories, the two stories, one from Switzerland and one from Uruguay of uh, UFOs causing uh, causing blackouts um my favorite thing about this is uh, in, in the uruguay story just the way this is phrased and and this isn't something that was translated so it isn't anything like that the ufo flew off very slowly towards the east as it vanished from sight the break in the supply of current was instantly terminated wouldn't it be much easier to say as it vanished from sight power was restored instead of the break in the supply of current was instantly terminated. I, maybe I'm being too picky about that. Maybe, maybe I'm almost absolutely being too, uh, too picky about that. But, um, for now let's, let's conclude this with our, um, story that's going to be a segue into a more in-depth analysis of, of this case. The headline on the cover says a policeman's lot 
Was there a macabre connection between a mysterious death he'd helped investigate and his personal CE1, possible CE4 experience? Hmm. This article is by Jenny Randalls, the um the 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 the, the grand dame, the the doyen, the the godmother of um of UFO research and and high strangeness research in the United Kingdom. Um she's she's great, uh does amazing work, but um there is a uh, a story here that is that is very interesting and it's about Police Constable Alan Davis, aged 33, of the West Yorkshire Police Force, that is not his real name, stationed at Todmorden, close to the Lancashire border in the Pennine Mountains. June 11th, 1980, Alan Davis, PC Davis, um, comes across uh, some cases that are going to have a profound effect on his life. And as, as far as I could tell, this is the first extensive report of this in the UFO press. June 11th, 1980, 3.45 in the afternoon, a body is found on top of a coal tip near a railroad line. The The body, dead body, um, is on top of a 20-foot high heap of coal with no no signs or, or indications of how it might have gotten there. It doesn't look like it's been dragged or anything like that. Workers find it and say, look, it wasn't here in the morning. It showed up sometime, you know, between the morning and 345. According to the coroner's report, uh, the man was five feet, six inches tall, weighed approximately 10 stone. So what, uh, 150 pounds or so, maybe um, death occurred about 10 hours before the body was found. He had not eaten at least 12 hours, had a one day's growth of beard. The state of the body was not consistent with somebody who'd been sleeping outdoors. It didn't seem like he was um, somebody who was homeless or, or sleeping uh, sleeping rough or outside or anything. No signs of foul play. Death had been caused by a heart attack, possibly induced by fear. This is a very strange death. The, the body is on this pile of coal. You know, there's a... There, the autopsy shows no signs of violence, no indication of how the body got on the pile of coal. Um, turns out, uh, as, a, as a result of the police investigation, um, the man was 56 years old. He um, was a coal miner who had emigrated to Britain from Poland, um, had a good relationship with his wife. Um, he, he was, you know, the, uh, not long afterwards. Um, Actually, he uh, he had been due to give his goddaughter away um, at her wedding on June 7th, but um, on June 6th, he said he was going to the store, um, saw some neighbors on the way. They said, you know, he said the same thing. He was never seen again until five days later when his body was found. The police have no idea um, what happened. The only clues were um, the heart attack. His eyes were were wide and staring, which the article says was indicative of death by fear. And he had a strange burn on his neck with an oozing growth in the middle of it. So they, they don't know how to explain this. But there's something about this body, that it, and it could be coincidence. It could be um, synchronicity, although I 
don't like that word sometimes. The man's name was Sigmund Adamski. Ooh, I mean, y- yes. I mean, it, it's a, he's a guy from Poland, and our George Adamski was a guy from Poland. But um, P.C. Davis um, was, uh, was sort of involved in this. And what's interesting is P.C. Davis had had a UFO encounter on November 28th. He was driving at the, in the middle of the night between 1 and 3 a.m. He was investigating a herd of cows that were on the loose. He drove around all night trying to find the cows. Um, 5.15, he gives up and he's driving back. And suddenly, 200 yards down the road, he sees an object lighting up the area. He thought it was a bus or a truck, but then as he got closer, he had no idea what it was. It was dome-shaped with a top that was flat. It emitted fluorescent light from the top and had a row of windows, square windows beneath it. The thing was rotating counterclockwise and was basically white. He said it was about 20 feet in diameter, hovering five feet above the surface of the, of the road. The top of it came within two feet of the, um, of the sort of streetlights, which he said he could tell it was about 12 feet, uh, the height of the, the device. PC Davis watches it for about a minute, he, he witnesses the top remains still, the lower half rotates. Um, the leaves and the trees were shaking nearby, even though there was no wind. Um, so clearly, the, the spinning of it is, is doing something. The weather hadn't been good. It had been raining. The road surface was wet. But beneath the object, the road was beginning to, to dry off. Um, Davis is unable to radio the police base. Um, so radio interference, you know, classic sort of, sort of UFO things. Um, and then he goes back. It's not there. He's back at his car. He, he has no idea how he arrived where he was. He, he has a, a sort of blackout and he's in a different place in relation and the craft is gone. And then he heard a voice. He thinks the voice was in his head, but he doesn't know. And the voice says, you should not be seeing this. It is not for your eyes, Davis. You will forget it. And he doesn't know what that refers to. He doesn't know what he has forgotten. But Jenny Randall says, I think on the evidence of other cases, we might suspect it is something rather interesting. And it is. And this is going to be the case we examine next time on The Saucer Life. It's not the case of Alan Davis. It's the case of Alan Godfrey, who had an extraordinary encounter, as we saw. And it is tied in, in some ways, supposedly, with this, uh, this death of Sigmund Adamski. It is a story that would have a profound effect on Godfrey's life and his career. The media is going to get involved. It becomes a fairly well-known, well-publicized case in the Pennine Mountains of Yorkshire in the UK. And it is, it is one of the most amazing uh, things. I really enjoyed looking into this case. There's some great books out there, including a relatively new one 
by Alan Godfrey himself, which um, which was published by Jenny Randall's company. Jenny Randall's wrote the original book about this, but I have not yet obtained a copy because it's old and out of print and in Britain. So, um, but I, I think having a book that is written by the witness that Randall's who originally investigated it has, has sort of endorsed is a good thing. We'll talk about that more on the next episode, but it is an amazing story. And, um, I, I think doing this, uh, this, um, uh, zine scene episode where we look at the first sort of story about this in, in the UFO press is a nice segue. And we will return with that story next time. Thanks for listening. Um, you can send in your comments and questions via the usual um, channels, and we'll be addressing those next time. Uh, the associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is and will always be a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time. Um, I was going to tell you to keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you, but I, I really think, based on the stories in this episode, I'm going to say keep your eye on the road because weird things tend to show up in the middle of the road, which isn't as catchy, but uh, maybe a little more apt. <laughs>